we experience very few relationships, very few situations or contexts that are marked by or in any way saturated in peace. It seems at this moment that everybody seems to be anxiously reacting over issues of racism or consumerism or sex and gender or religion and terrorism. I saw a really typical couple of lines just this morning in an article in the USA Today that talked about how gun and ammo sales are skyrocketing after what happened in San Bernardino. That's not really news, though. Uh, that's been happening since the unspeakable horror of member Sandy Hook, that elementary school back east. That kind of started this pattern, where now every time there's a shooting, whether it's religiously motivated or not, there's this rise in guns and ammo sales. So that's been going on for a couple of years. What's new this time? 40% of the buyers walk into the store and say they've never owned a gun. And the writer of the article said that essentially what these gun store owners are hearing is this. We've become increasingly afraid, and we don't want to die cowering in a corner of a room waiting to be shot. So let's, let's buy a gun. And I just think all of this anxious reacting to whatever it is just raises the question, if we're going to be honest, is there a basis for a re peaceful response to life? Or do we have to choose between tit-for-tat violence and a kind of um, religious denial or naivete? where you feel like you're just burying your real truest thoughts in the sand because you don't want to go buy a gun. And I'm just wondering, and I want to wonder with you for a few minutes this morning, is there any sort of basis for a peaceful response to life? And so doing, as uh, Mike and I will do these four weeks, we are tying Advent and these Advent themes of hope and peace together with Eucharist, and I want to suggest to you this morning as we go on here, Eucharist as the potential for a peaceful response to life, how Eucharist can become to us the presence of real peace. So first of all, what is peace in the biblical sense? Well, there's a couple of things we can say at least, that um, peace is an intention of God. Did you catch that? It's not something we first hoped for, against the backdrop of something that makes us anxious. No, peace is first and foremost a part of the intentionality of God, and Galatians 5 says is to be produced in us by the Holy Spirit. Peace, biblically speaking, is a gift of God and meant precisely to be an antidote to our otherwise chaotic emotions. So peace in the biblical notion is not merely the absence of conflict. And um, I just cracked myself up. <laughs> These are my, fav my, fa my five favorite words for this morning. I just, if I had a magic wand, this would all just drop deeply into your heart. Peace is a rest of the will. It is a rest. I was watching the kids this morning. I don't know sign language, but whenever they said peace, look at me. They went like this. Didn't they? Peace. 
It's a rest somewhere deep in your will. It's a groundedness somewhere deep within us that comes from a divine assurance about how things are going to turn out. It doesn't come from burying your head in the sand. It doesn't come from a religious naivete. It's a settledness of the will because we know how things are going to turn out. And so its source, biblically speaking, is abiding in Christ. Um, Paul, writing in Romans 14, said that the kingdom of God, which is to say his ruling and reigning, or the expression of God, is righteousness, peace, and joy. Paul, speaking to the Colossians, and, and um, in this case, understanding the kinds of petty divisions that can happen in a church, Paul says to them, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So this is foundational to the biblical notion, and the secret to peace, biblically speaking, is to settle yourself in the easy yoke of Jesus and to abandon outcomes to him. That's the biblical secret. This groundedness is not into a nothingness. Look at me, it's not into religion. It's not even into Christianity. It's not into Anglicanism. It's in the yoke of Jesus who invites us week in and week out to practice this yokedness at his table. To remind ourselves week in and week out as we come forward that yes, I am yoked with Jesus. So that the biblical vision is a peace-filled, peace-enabled, peace-driven humanity. But again, it, answers, it, it begs the question, how? I don't know if you spent any time, I, I hadn't, and I just happened to see this all this morning, where for the first time I saw actually pictures and little bios of the 14 people who were killed in San Bernardino. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you should do it. It was good for me to do it. 27-year-old mom who had just given birth to a baby. 26-year-old who's about to get married. You just go on and on and on people who devoted their lives to public service. It's just, it's unspeakably horrible. So then if, you're at, if we're at all alive, we all have to be thinking, Todd, how in the heck is this not all just rhetoric? How isn't this just religious wishful thinking? I mean, how can this make sense to any reasonable person? So how is it that we experience anything like peace? And the answer is, I think, something like this. It has to be experiential knowledge. That is to say, a knowledge we personally know somewhere deep in our being of the care and competence of God's love. That the world is a perfectly safe place for me to be. Now, you know, if something happened to one of my kids on the job like that, I don't know that my first thought would be the world is a perfectly safe place for me to be. But again, I want you to look at me. There is no place to hide. And one of the biggest decisions you will ever make in your life is whether you think that's true or not. If the world, by God's competent love, is not a perfectly safe place for you to be, then you will ensure that it becomes that. And the moment you make that decision, you will do anything to make yourself safe. And that just leashes all hell of violence and bigotry and hatred and on and on and on. 
or we come to the conclusion that though the reality we see in the pages of the New York Times and on, you know, cable news and talk radio is real. Those bullets were real. They did real damage to real human flesh. That's all real. So we don't run from that. We're not dualists. And we're not nuts. This is real. But there is a reality that transcends and lies behind that that will someday make all this make sense. So, for instance, if we were to have picked up our gospel reading uh, this morning uh, a little bit earlier in the narrative, when Jesus was in the upper room and explaining the brutality that was about to come to him. So we didn't have bullets that could tear through flesh then, but we did have whips with bits of sharp objects tied to them that could ruin flesh. And we did have thorns that could pierce scalps. And we did have slugging. There was physical brutality that was about to come to the innocent one. Can you picture that in your mind? Capitalized, the innocent one. And brutal physical brutality was about to come to him. And he knew that in the midst of that, he was going to be left alone. That there weren't any first responders who were going to come to him and say, I'll take a bullet before you do. He knew that everybody was going to flee from him. So it says, John 16, I know you're going to leave me alone, but listen to these words of Jesus. Yet I am not alone. You are going to leave me alone in my dearest time of need. You are all going to scatter and leave me alone. Now, that, that was real. But listen to the transcendent reality that Jesus, who you say is your Lord, and you say you want to apprentice yourself to him and become his follower, well, then listen to his worldview. Yet I am not alone. No matter what the facts say, I have something deeper within me that I know I am not alone. He goes on to explain what he means. I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. I'm inviting you into my worldview. He goes on to say explicitly, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now that is what makes the world a perfectly safe place for you to be. It is not the absence of religion that's never going to happen. No, and no matter what you think politically about gun laws, I don't care. But pro or con, that's not the answer. It's not the answer to your existential peace. Are you feeling me here? Not that deep peace. It's not the answer to that. It may improve society one way or the other, and I hope we can figure it out. But that is not the point here. The point here is Jesus says, I have overcome the world. So in this passage, the key idea is take heart. Well, what does it mean to take heart? Well, the backdrop, of course, is losing heart. That we lose heart because of life's realities. We do. All of us do. You know, Paul's letters to the Corinthians are a lot of amazing different things, and most scholars believe that what we have in 1st 2nd Corinthians is only a part of this ongoing exchange between Paul and the Corinthian church. But one thing that marks that correspondence is Paul explaining to them the deep pain that he constantly lived with 
sometimes because of them. So listen to how Paul took heart. You know this famous passage in 2 Corinthians 4. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. In all this, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Now again, that begs the question, what the heck are you talking about? How can you not lose heart in that? This is either religious rhetoric or dopey. This cannot be real. How does somebody go through that and not lose heart? This is either a load of bunk or he's got a worldview that some of us don't share. Well, here's his worldview. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So it's real that I'm treated brutally and unfairly and people misjudge me and on and on and on. But my inner self is being renewed. So to take heart, when Jesus says take heart, it means something like this. From this worldview I just gave you, receive comfort and confidence and courage that I actually have overcome the world. So again, I, I want to just drill in a little deeper here. So how is it again that we take heart? And I want to link it back to this experiential knowledge that I'm talking about and the worldview that these biblical people knew. Look at your psalm. Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people. The Lord indeed will give what is good. So now let's transition a bit here from just kind of the, these ideas about peace and begin to connect them to the table and begin to think about the table as a feast on the real world that trains us to live in the world we know, right? That yokedness that I was talking about. But you just try to hold in your imagination weekly feasting at the table as a feasting on the real world and training us to live in it. What I'm wondering is if what if Jesus and his table could be the one place where we always feel welcomed in peace? And what if together this was the one place in our life weekly that was always pervaded by peace? This isn't a liturgical test. It's just conversational preaching. Uh, what is it we do before we come to Eucharist? We extend what to each other? Peace. What if us as a community of faith and this sacred space and this table could be the one place weekly that we know we're welcomed in peace, that this is pervaded by peace, and we then could turn and leave this place full of peace. Experientially knowing what Ephesians says, that Jesus is our peace, or looking at our readings this morning from the gospel, where again, the worst and hardest things have happened. You know, Jesus predicted it in John 16. By John 20, it's happened. It's over. And the, the unspeakable, unimaginable brutality has happened to him. So the worst and hardest things that were ever going to happen to his first friends have just happened. Arrest, trial, death by crucifixion, fear of the Jewish and Roman leaders. And so they're stuck in this room full of fear. And Jesus comes and stands before them and says to them the most ridiculous dang words. Ridiculous. Look what they just did to you. 
And we've already heard, because we have friends who know people in the Sanhedrin. We have friends who are connected to the temple in Herod. And my uncle works in Rome, and, and we know what the Romans are going to do to us. And Jesus walks in and says, go buy some ammo. No, he walks in and says, peace be with you. Because Jesus is wanting to kind of exhale into them peace as a quality or inner disposition of life that would take them through what he knew they were going to have to go through. Because Jesus knew that their fundamental character at that moment could not be described as peace. You know, character is simply our habituated will or desire or decisions. And then we become the decisions we make. And then these decisions create a momentum in our heart. And then this momentum in our heart becomes the visible outcome of a human life. So I thought about this, uh, I think, a number of months ago when I was um, having a half-day retreat and going to see my uh, spiritual director. I don't know why I was thinking about this. It didn't have anything to do with recent events. But it's just, I had this picture of, of an altar, as a matter of fact, but it wasn't an altar that was covered like this. I saw an altar in my mind that had like four big, you know, hefty, robust legs on it. And I, so I was thinking altar, you know, placing my life, giving my life on this altar and wondering how I could do this peacefully. And into my mind came this idea, I just want to give you quickly, of sort of four legs of an altar on which one could peacefully place their life. And I can put my hands over my heart and tell you that, honest to God, this is how I try to live. I'm sure I don't do it perfectly, but honest to God, these are the thoughts that, that, that pervade my daily moment-by-moment -moment living. Number one, first leg, indifference. That is to say, put your desires and preferences under the service of God and your neighbor. You'll be surprised how much peace that brings to you. Number two, a non-anxious differentiation while staying connected to difference and pain. That is to say, I am clearly and unapologetically a follower of Jesus. I, I, I don't believe in religious pluralism. I think it's nutty. I mean, as a social reality, sure. As a civil reality, fine. But just don't try to tell me that what Jesus teaches is the same as what everybody else teaches. That's baloney. I am a differentiated, fully differentiated Jesus nutcase. I think he's the best, the greatest, amazing. No one ever taught the kind of things he taught with his kind of power and authority. He is the towering figure of all of human history. Nobody's teachings ever even come close to the billions of human beings that have been benefited through Jesus. I am fully self-differentiated. But because of that, I can place my face into pain and into difference and be safe. This is the third leg on my personal altar. I know that I'm always safe in the kingdom of God. I actually believe the things that Jesus taught. So I know I'm always safe. It kind of, it, this only bugs me a little bit, but it, it bugs me a little bit because I think, I, I hear what you all say behind my back and the people I, you know, I work with and stuff. Everybody just thinks I'm a nice guy. Actually, you know, I'm, I don't think I am that nice. I don't know. I don't even know what that means. But I am grounded in these things. And if that's what you're experiencing when you say to me things like, well, gee, Todd's a nice guy or whatever people say, it's, that's not by accident. 
I have spent decades, literally decades, trying to ground my life in, this rea- in these realities that I am always safe in the kingdom of God. I, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm nuts, but I actually believe those scriptures that say that I'm never going to die. I'm not. I'm just going to be translated into some other reality. See, once that becomes your genuine worldview, it gives you kind of that groundedness. When those kids kept doing that, I just kept feeling this groundedness of a human soul. It's grounded in peace. And then again, hands over my heart, I probably say this to myself 10 times a day. This might be my most frequent self-talk. The Lord is my shepherd. I do not have to live in a state of want. I refuse to live in a state of habituated, disordered desire. Just absolutely refuse. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. And that has been true for what will be this April, 60 years. I have never been in want. Never. Had a lot of pain, a lot of confusion, a lot of heartache. But through it somehow, I have never truly been in want. See, sheep naturally live with a sense of lack. Think about it. The Lord is my shepherd. Sheep naturally are nervous. And most veterinarians would tell you it's, it's you know, as far as we can know, an animal's head. It's because they live with this sense of lack constantly. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? So sheep are very wary and very nervous. But the New Testament picture is Jesus laid down his life for the sheep so that they would no longer have to be wary and nervous. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they find peace and confidence in it. And so now lying behind all of, or sorry, lying in front of all of humanity, it's Todd the evangelist here, lying now in front of all of humanity is this invitation. And that is to say in peace and in confident obedience, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the invitation that lies in front of you. You can be shepherded by consumerism. You can be shepherded by trying to find your own peace through powering up in various ways. Or you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. That is the evangelistic invitation that stands before all of humanity. And I want to say this is what animated the faith of the great saints. I have on my desktop this famous saying from Thomas Kempis. And again, it makes it sound sort of Pauline, like you, th- you read this and you think, oh, come on, no human being actually thinks that. As soon as I start, you, you probably will have heard of this. Akempis said, choose evermore rather to have less than more. Seek ever the lower place and to be under all. Desire ever to pray that the will of God be all and wholly done. You can go find this when we're done. And, and, and this, is, this is a sentence for me. So, such one enters the land of peace and quiet. This is what the saints have always known. That the path to peace and quiet is to choose evermore to have less than more. To seek the lower place and to be under all. And desire to pray. This is just another way of talking about indifference and the kind of things I've been talking about. Desire ever to pray that the will of God be all. See, how do you make your way to indifference? 
You make your way to this place called indifference by wanting God's will to be done. Everything else is a matter of indifference. I only have one difference-making thing in my heart or soul. It's the will of God be done. And living in that kind of life, a Kempis wants to teach us, one enters the land of peace and quiet. So I'm about to hand this over to my friend Mike for the last couple weeks, and I, so I want to say this as we pivot towards that, that our weekly Eucharist invitation is to remember. To do what we do weekly in remembrance of me does not mean just to recall mentally. It means, rather, let the events of the upper room become present to us such that this past event becomes a way of present living and a future hope. Our weekly invitation is to take part. This is not a show that's put on by people like me or Dennis standing at the table or whoever might stand there. This is not a show put on by priests. This is something the church does together. And that's our third invitation, to do this together. Our Ephesians reading says, he made the two one. And this means that in Christ now there are no others. The Gentiles were the others in Greek. They were, they were the ethne. They were the others. And now there is no other. We do this together because of Jesus. Our weekly invitation is to receive this gracious gift, this mysterious way of God being available and known to us through simple aspects of nature like bread and wine. And weekly, as we come forward together, we're anticipating Christ's return. Paul reminds us in Corinthians that as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so Eucharist reminds us of the presence of Jesus until he returns and restores all of creation finally. And then the sacraments, having fulfilled their role, will disappear and we will be in complete union with Christ. The bread and wine will have done their job. And then lastly, we thank God. As we come to Eucharist, we come thanking the Lord that he's given us life and that we have a new start as humans and that it's in Christ. Now I will invite you uh, to a moment of peaceful quiet to maybe put your liturgies down and Maybe bow your head and close your eyes and, and just think this thought with me. We've said it a couple times, that peace is rooted in the experiential knowledge of the care and competence of God's love. Peace is rooted in the experiential knowledge that the world is a perfectly safe place for me to be. And now I just want you to bring to mind a moment in the last days or week where you knew of God's care. You experienced it in your deepest being. You experienced his care. And now, maybe this morning, you want to bring that knowledge to bear on anything under which in this moment you struggle with peace. So first identify the care of God. And now identify some place where you don't feel peace. And let that deep inner knowledge of God's care for you wash over worry or anxiety and bring you to a new place.